Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Hey, Becky, what's happening? Welcome, everybody. We got a thought leader in our midst today. We've got an AI living legend in our midst today. So we're going to try to sound really intelligent, even though we know he's the most intelligent guy in the room. We're just going to listen and be preached to. And I think we're about to have a really interesting conversation here. Yes. So we are talking to Nathan Chappelle today. He is the senior VP at Donor Search Analytics, but he has been a thought leader in our space. And if you're not following him on LinkedIn, go ahead and do that today. Um, But he just really has served this community, has pushed the leading edge of where we're moving to, and I just can't wait to jump, jump into this conversation today. But he has more than 20 years of leadership experience here in the nonprofit sector, senior VP of philanthropy at City of Hope, to assistant vice chancellor at UC San Diego. And he was this consultant with CCS, which we've had some incredible folks, mm-hmm. including Lindsay Simons, our mutual friend from CCS Love many years ago. Um, but in all, Nathan has helped generate more than a billion dollars in philanthropic revenue. So his legacy is on the charitable side, but it's also on just moving us to where the future is. And some of those conversations are with AI. Um, Nathan was named one of the top 100 influencers in philanthropy just a couple years ago. So he knows what he's talking about. He's actually had a TEDx on the same topic, but we want to dive into artificial intelligence Yep, when robots are going to be delivering your pledge forms, that's our joke. <laughs> but we're it's actually going to be a really um, fruitful conversation. But I just wanted to introduce Nathan. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh my gosh, the honor is mine. I'm I'm uh, such a pleasure to be able to join and spend some time with you. Well, we appreciate it. Would you mind just kind of give us a little bit of your story? How did you get interested in AI meets philanthropy and maybe some of the dots along the way? I'd just love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, gosh, you, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you think you have a, a, a plan in life and then life has another plan for you. And, and, you know, as you get older, as I've kind of matured in my career, I learned to kind of trust, you know, that path more and more. But I'd say, you know, some of some of my journey is surprising. Some of it's not. You know, I I grew up actually uh, pretty low income with a, a mom who worked three jobs. My dad left my sister and I when we were young, but we were very involved in philanthropy. Um, in fact, there was an article in the local newspaper when I was a kid raising money for cystic fibrosis. I was like eight years old and and did Habitat for Humanity project. So, you know, part of this. Um, this idea that I spent 20 years in philanthropy is, is not surprising. You know, my mom instilled this idea that we were the recipients of charity, but we also gave back. We were, you know, as often as in, a, in the way that we could. Um, you know, the, the, the part about AI is a little bit interesting. So prior to getting in the nonprofit sector, I went to undergrads, uh, undergrad and got a, a degree in business. I started two private um, companies, just sole proprietorships. And um, both had a technology component. Um, and my second company was one of the, the first dot com to sell skis on the internet back in '97. Crazy enough, it was when I, I read an article. I mean, read an article about the internet, which is how you know nuts it was. But Amazon was losing money. Like, I mean, people thought Amazon was going to go bankrupt, 
And there was a pair of skis I wanted from the East Coast and being on the West Coast, you know, you couldn't get them, you know, you, you, there's no shops, you, you know, you can do it. So I contacted this company who was making skis out of their garage and we sold those and then we sold Solomon and K2 and Rosignol and, and it was great. Um, so this idea of like this being an early adopter and, uh, and frankly, it was self-serving because I liked skiing and I wanted to figure out how to do it for free. Um, it's always kind of been in my blood, you know, and when I got into nonprofit sector, um, kind of on accident, it's a whole different story, but a lot of people kind of fall into it. I was a board member at a local boys and girls club and the director quit. And I, I said I would step in for a few months and, uh, you know, keep an eye on things while they hired someone new. And I ended up there seven years and, you know, and truly where I, my, everything in life came together, you know, and then you look back 20 years later I, I think for the most part, I had always felt like a fish out of water in the nonprofit sector. I mean, there's um, it definitely changed now. 20 years ago, to talk about ROI, to talk about um, KPIs and and metrics and margins was blasphemy. Actually, I mean, I <laughs> I remember 20 years ago getting you know kind of beat down by a group of professionals for talking about anything other than the art of philanthropy. And I was trying to introduce this concept that there is a definite art of, of fundraising, but there's a science of the fundraising management. It is a business after all. And, and, and our industry's come light years in acknowledging that at the same time, always pushing the envelope of like, what are the drivers to success? And when you get to scale, um, those drivers become more and more important, you know, in terms of, you know, you've got teams of 200 people, you know, how is every person, you know, how are you maximizing their performance? So kind of a natural um, introduction into AI because you get to a certain level where the technology caps out and you're like, well, what's next for us? Like, what can we explore that hasn't been done before? And, and I, I found this about myself. I, I like doing things that haven't been done and um, because that's just where I get fed and, and want to learn. So, yeah. So, and then, you know, once you've done it, you want to move on to, to something else, but it's a, it, I do think it's an inflection point in our industry right now. Um, you know, data to your point, you know, more and more people are talking about it openly and, and prioritizing it. Um, and now it's about how do you make that data actionable? I just think your story is so interesting. And I, I love how beautifully you shared and kind of weaved it through because, you know, no one has the same story of how they fell into philanthropy. And I love that you talk about just your experience as a child and this like warrior mother that you had that was not only the benefit the beneficiary of charity but still made it a point to say we've got to figure out a way to return this favor and pay it forward i think that is really a beautiful metaphor for what you're doing right now and the, and just the ai space is so interesting to me when i hear about ai and philanthropy i mean i feel like wilson in home improvement like my little head comes up above the hedge like what are we talking about like i want to know what this is so i want to talk about about the future of philanthropy and what giving trends are you paying attention to as we head into 2021, Nathan? Yeah, 20, you know, 2021 will be a very interesting year in terms of looking back at what happened in 2020, right? So um, if anyone follows me, probably one of my biggest soapboxes has been for a number of years, um, a concern that, that the U.S. specifically is becoming less generous. And um, I uncovered this kind of on accident. Actually, it was started when I was at, at CCS. I was doing 
uh, we did kind of internal trainings for like we stretched each other to do like come up with a topic and present to other consultants that could rip your stuff apart. And I started on this um, topic of the evolution of mega gifts. And at the time, you know, very much less, much fewer billionaires. Um, the idea of mega gifts was starting to, you know, become more common, but it was really at the beginning. So I was really tracking this evolution of mega gifts. And ultimately, um, over time, you know, those conversations kept on developing. And I added on different pieces of information that I would research. And I, I found that while philanthropy remained at 2.1% of GDP for the last 40 years, I started looking at trends like, well, the birth of the internet was within those 40 years. Like, did that not increase giving? Because we all now give from our phones and we can do recurring gifts. And But it didn't. It, it only increased philanthropy two-tenths of 1%. Um, and so this this idea of like, you have to acknowledge that that giving is remaining at 2.1% of the GDP, but these billionaires are giving these huge gifts. That actually means that the average person is giving less and less. And as it turns out, through a lot of my research and studies, and, and frankly, I have to give a, I gave a talk on AI to the Catholic Church, um, to a group of priests in Indiana, which I thought, man, if there's any sign that AI has gone mainstream is when the priests are calling you to ask you to give a presentation <laughs> on AI. And I uncovered this, the, the separate data point um, where it, essentially there's this disassociation with, the, with religion in the U.S., but the average person who associates with any religion gives twice as much as someone who doesn't. And so there's very direct correlations between like tax changes and um, this disassociation with religion, which is exemplified in COVID um, because people have just essentially abandoned the church in a lot of ways that, you know, 2020, while there was a big increase in giving to organiz healthcare organizations, direct response did very well, at least at the beginning half of the year. Um, I, I think you, we're going to see a new norm in the U.S. in terms of kind of the, the baseline of generosity. And, and I don't think it's too late. Um, but I think if we don't, one, deploy technology like and use things like AI to help us become more relational, faster, better, we end up very much like European giving, where, where um, charity, you know, origins of, of modern charity all come from Europe, but their giving now is much more transactional. It's, it's more a membership, you know, that you would just become a member of this or a member of that and, you know. Um, much more transactional than the customary relational fundraising. So I, I think COVID probably accelerated this. Um, and my gut is this this move into more um, less generosity, uh, more transactional, probably by a few years. So um, I'm, I'm definitely watching it very closely. You've given such. Uh mic drop moments in there. So I want to lift a couple that I heard because this is going to be a theme this year, y'all. I'm already feeling this because we just talked to Gabe Cooper from Virtuous CRM. He kind of brings similar correlations of just this idea that it's easy to look at the top line and be like, okay, gen growing, you know, giving maybe growing. But when you start to dive into that, it's not necessarily the reality when it comes to lower level first time donors. And so I love that you're bringing up that point because I think we need to apply that philosophy to everything, especially in fundraising. You could have a really great year, but that's not the only metric you can look at because downstream you may have lost half your donor base. So there's just more to it than that. So and, thank you for that. And can I jump in here? Because yeah. to me, it not only do I does this statistic scare me so much just from 
you know, an empathy standpoint and not, and not allowing more people to come in and get to know missions, but it seems like such a liability to the organization to have all of our eggs in these really big baskets. Because if, if one of these billionaires decides not to give, it could literally cripple our organizations, our sectors. And so it really makes me feel like it's incumbent upon us to get back to, you know, I always talk about flipping the donor pyramid. We have got to go back to that bottom portion of the pyramid. We need those annual giving donors. We need those people that are, you know, putting just a little bit into the collection plate because we need movements. We don't, we do need our dollars, but we need believers. We need people showing up in big ways. Um, and, and people who are volunteering, people are leaning into missions, they're naturally going to evolve into giving when they're able, you know, and giving more, the more that that engagement comes up. So I'm really glad that we're sort of talking about this because I do think it's the elephant in the room. And so I'm, I want to know like where you feel like, where, how can we use AI to come out of this or to inform these kinds of, um, opportunities that we can leverage? Yeah, well, thanks so much for, for you know, um, highlighting that and a thousand percent yes. I mean, I, I think this has just been the elephant in the room. It's been the unspoken, you know, starting to see a few people embracing the conversation, you know, but the resiliency of the nonprofit sector has been in middle America, you know, and the ability to just that we are a generous nation and that we, you know, tend to give, you know, in good times and in bad times. And, um when you do, you know, you become less diverse in that giving, it becomes more of a Hail Mary. And you're absolutely right. What happens, you know, if those, you know, billionaires don't, I mean, they're making up a major uh, portion of giving at this point, more and more every year. And you're right, organizations have, um, you know, been trying to build a better mousetrap forever. Like the, the idea is like, you know, let's, the, the efficient thing to do is to get the largest gifts from the fewest number of people with the fewest number of staff, right? That's what most organizations' metric of success is, when in reality, you're absolutely right. The real pandemic in philanthropy is that donor retention is at 40% on, on average, you know, ish. And, and that's tragic. That means that organizations are not um, embracing um, funders, donors, in a way that's relational. And this is where AI, I think, um, has a lot of application in the future. And there's lots of different ways that um, AI tools are already being used in the nonprofit sector, um, either in delivering um, programs and services um, and in real ways and saving lives. It's just super cool. And then on the fundraising side, um, this idea that, you know, the universe is not your, the universe of people are not your donors. Um, that, you know, only 56% of Americans make gifts. But instead of going, you know, pray and, you know, spray and pray, you know, organizations <laughs> need to leverage the tools that they have to embrace the people that are likely to give and then use technology and creativity and the art to connect with those people in meaningful ways. And I'm happy to give some examples of Please. how AI is yeah, being jump used. In with some examples. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll start by just on the program side, because there there are some like really, really powerful ways that I've seen AI saving lives for nonprofit organizations. And if you know, some huge initiatives with Google and Microsoft that are funding AI solutions for nonprofits. And there's a lot of free money out there um, for creative missions um, and um, 
ideas to address needs and humanity that you can get. Uh, Microsoft has a huge budget in Microsoft philanthropies in, in funding projects to nonprofits. Um, so does Google and all over the world. But uh, one of my favorite examples, there's a, a company called Zipline that um, has, is essentially delivering blood um, to individuals in remote areas in Africa via drone. And they can do this essentially in real time. And you know, there's areas in, that in Africa that just can't get blood in time for someone who needs it. And their central location is able to get it via cell phone. They can then program the drone to fly over and drop this exact blood, blood type and amount with a parachute straight down to the clinic. And since they've started, they have had zero spoilage of, of um, blood waste in the entire country, in Rwanda, um, in Ghana, it's amazing. Um, wow. So many examples like that. There's hospitals that are they. Um, University of Maryland delivered a kidney with a drone um, from a you know for a transplant donor. And so, if you think about mo you know minutes are life changing for people that are on the operating table. They can go from building top to building top instead of ambulance you know down the stairs, the ambulance to traffic and you know, all that. So lots and lots of applications where um, AI is improving life. Um, and that's we're literally at the, you know, just the beginning, beginning stages of that. The fundraising side, you know, it's, it's this new era of data um, is super important, but data by itself is essentially a commodity. You know, there's just data everywhere, but what do you do with it? It's all about making that data actionable. Uh, we started four years ago um, in healthcare specifically, looking at uh, just wealth data by themselves, by itself, was only predicting um, patients that were going to donate 10% of the time. And so we were screening every patient like every hospital does and send, essentially sending our fundraisers out to the rich, richer patients because, you know, that's where the, you know, it seemed like the lowest hanging fruit was. Well, it turns out those were only converting to donors. If you look on average, about 10% of the time, some hospitals around 2% of the time. And then you see this attrition in fundraisers where they're only staying in jobs for 18 months. Well, no wonder. I mean, they're getting these prospects that they're chasing down. One out of 10, actually, you know, they, they, they go the distance with. So it creates a lot of false expectations and missed metrics and things like that. We decided to flip it upside down, look at all the data that we had in healthcare lots of data, the data is pretty consistent because hospitals like to bill people um, accurately for the services they provide. And uh, from a HIPAA perspective, leverage all the data we could. And it turned out about 80% of the decision to give was based on the quantity and type of visits that the patients were having. So whether it was inpatient or outpatient, um, the quality and quantity and type and frequency. Um, so we got really good at, at predicting whether or not someone was worth pursuing um, because you can't you know you can't pursue a, a million patients a year but you can pursue those that look like other donors you've had in the past hey friends we always say community is everything and we really believe it this podcast is designed to start conversations provide inspiration and hacks to help you do more for your mission but your voice is the one that's been missing at the table that's why we've completely reimagined the we're for good community to serve you even better We've created an exclusive online network for our listeners so you can connect with new friends, keep the conversations going and growing after every episode. And oh yeah, it's completely free. Think of this network as the after party for every podcast episode and a place to turn when you feel stuck or need help or feedback from others who have a passion for growing their nonprofit missions too. But friends, hear me. 
This only works with you included. So come on over, pull up a chair and join us. We can't wait to connect. It's free. Join us at weareforgood.com slash hello. See you inside. And we need to pause because I'm thinking of our dear friend, Lynn Wester. Yeah. You remembering this when she said the future is that behavior is king. It's not just about, oh, I live in this zip code and I have this type of assets. It's what do you actually do? Like you, oh, you went to the hospital six times. And each of those visits was 45 minutes long. And we know that's going to be a more generous person. Yes, and I'm so glad you brought that example up because anyone who's worked in healthcare philanthropy knows that wealth is not an indicator of gratitude. And when you hone in on the gratitude, that is where sustainable relationships are, not just the biggest gifts, but the ones that endure for a really long time. And, And so we know that, but layering on this idea of using and leveraging AI in 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 the number of minutes you spend I feel like my mind just exploded. That is a really really interesting statistic that is and the actionable piece is absolutely critical to having this data. Yeah. And I mean we're talking about staffs. I mean you've you've shared some of our ugly stats for the industry. I mean that turnover is so quick. And if you don't have these systems, I mean, the people that we're competing against are Amazons. I mean, in terms of we're being chased to buy those mm-hmm. shoes that I looked at four weeks ago, you know, whatever it may be. And um, we don't have those practices. It's all so much in people's heads. I mean, so we're really not even competing, you right. know, in the same way in this environment. So I think it's a really interesting topic. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, the nonprofit sector has always fallen behind the, the for-profit sector, and that's a whole separate talk But in the reasons why. But when you're evaluated, your primary evaluation in nonprofit is based on your cost per dollar raised, right? So if I, you know, being in leadership positions in hospitals and universities, I always had to go and say, well, we're going to produce X percent, you know, uh, you know, for every dollar that, you know, you give us, we're going to turn that into whatever. And what that does is it, it makes nonprofit organizations essentially hedge their bets. And if you're hedging your bets, you're not investing in innovation. And so nonprofit sector falls 10, 15, 20 years behind the private sector, you know, AI is not new. Machine learning, well, was essentially, you know, created in 1955. But, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, the Amazons, they've gotten so good at predicting behaviors um, based on experiential data. You know, wealth data is important in helping determine how much someone might give. And we, we actually, it's a very powerful tool. And it's funny because, after just jumping over to donor search um, at the end of 2020, I've got emails like you went to the dark side, you know, like <laughs> what gives things like that. And, and, you know, we've always used wealth data uh, to help, you know, think of it as a two-sided coin on one side of the coin is the data that helps predict whether or not someone's likely to give on the other side of the coin is how much. And both of those data sets are very different um, to your point. The experiential data um, is why, Every organization from Facebook to Google collects you know, behavioral data on people because that's how you start to look at individuals' likelihood to do something or to buy something. It's based on their their behaviors, not just if they have money in their bank account. Um, so it's in my mind, it's you know this other side of the coin. It's all about actionable insights um, that allow nonprofits to then use their staff most effectively. I love that. Nathan, I mean, I know I'm getting so into this conversation. I am having flashbacks in my mind of just CEOs and of my organization who 
you know, feel proud, God love them, you know, who know enough about development to be dangerous. They know things like cost to raise a dollar and they hone in on it. And they think that is the mothership of where we're (laughs) going to be able to pull stats that will inform where we should move. But that is such a small piece of the pie. It's an important piece of the pie. It's the cool whip, you know, but we still need to have the pie. And if what you said, if you're, if you are hedging your bets with something like CTRD, then you are not innovating. And and I want to piggyback on that and say the quantitative data is so critical and we've got to figure out how to leverage it. But the qualitative data, I cannot, I'm sorry, as a storyteller, I can't not come in here and say that that is equally as important because what our donors are saying, and if you're trying to understand behaviors, we can watch trends, but not knowing what motivated the behavior can be something that is really crippling. So I, I think that the head and the heart have to equally talk to each other. We cannot forget about the science, yeah. but, but we can't forget about the art too. And so I love this collective conversation. It really shifts my mindset. So I wonder if we could transition and, and you know, jump into how could somebody implement this? I mean, you know, we've got a diverse group of listeners, but somebody listening to this may think AI, yeah. okay, I'm going to turn this off. <laughs> They've already actually left the podcast today. I hope you're still sure. here. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're still here because we want to yeah. dive in and say, everybody can start somewhere. Can yeah. you give us some feedback on that? Where to jump in? Yeah, the, the exciting part, there there's an answer that's now I could answer truthfully now that you know, three, four years ago, I, I, I'd have to answer totally differently. So in fact, I was presenting at an AFP, I think in San Diego a couple of years ago, and on the topic of AI and the future of generosity. And, and at the time, you know, we're building custom machine learning models, you know, was costing on average 75 to 150,000 a piece, right? And, you know, the average person that's going to AFP, you know, local chapters, like, you know, someone was brave enough to raise their hand at the end. They're like, this all sounds awesome. Like, you know, this could help us in 10 years. But what do we do now? Like, what, what can a, how can a nonprofit now leverage um, some of this technology? And um, at the time, I, I literally was just like, you're just going to have to wait. Like, it's just not there yet. The, the technology is too expensive. The way machine learning models are being coded or were being coded even five years ago is completely different than the way their machine learning models are built now. And it's, it's you know, having my, my background in, um, in like websites and, you know, I, I equate this to, and when I built our first website in 1997, I had to hire a guy. I spent $100,000 to hire a guy to build a website in HTML. Yeah. And, <laughs> and honestly, that website now, I would have built myself on a weekend, you know, for $50 using Squarespace. Like it's just, night and day. And, and the similar thing is happening in, in a very accelerated way in, in machine learning. So even five years ago, the way you were essentially hard coding and programming and machine learning models to like learn or not learn or retrain, um, there are now already automated tools um, and organizations that are leveraging like the latest, greatest machine learning algorithms to provide at a cost that's much more affordable. So in fact, um, while I was at Futurist, we built a machine learning model using one and a half billion data points from donor search data that we built for donor search. And so they, donor search has four scores within, within donor search that predict uh, likelihood of giving a repeat donor a major gift and a lifetime value. Those are all built in machine learning. So, uh, and at a 
crazy ridiculous price. So, you know, where, you know, you're getting your well screening data, now you can start leveraging machine learning. And um, those those nonprofits now, there's, there's a big difference between building a customized machine learning model with just your data that is going to really predict, you know, things like, like crazy. Um, but at the same time, not the average nonprofit now is able to, to leverage some of these tools. And, and we're not the only company, there's others out there that are uh, focus on different areas of AI, um, and it's, I'd say, um, some of it, like the donor search solution, is probably the most affordable and most accessible. Um, others are still ranging maybe in the $30,000 to $50,000 range, um, so out of reach for, like, the local boys and girls clubs, um, but uh, it's it's going to get there. Um, and to our earlier point, the, the idea in philanthropy is really to move into this idea of precision philanthropy. And you have experience in healthcare, you know, precision medicine is everything, right? It's this idea that there's no one type of breast cancer, that every single person, there's not even 10 types of breast cancer. Every single person has their unique type of breast cancer. Some drugs will help and some drugs will hurt based on their genotype. In AI and in, in, in philanthropy, there's no, there's no right answer for a group of donors, that every donor essentially is on their own path of either becoming more engaged or less engaged. And the only way to track that in any reasonable way is to have a, an algorithm that is keeping track of what, what are they responding to things? Are they not responding to things? Are they going to things? Are they not going to things? Are they showing signs of being engaged um, or not? And that's where this idea of machine learning versus any type of other predictive models lives and breathes, it grows and it, it, it's always on. And so it's recalculating the, the, the trajectory of someone becoming a better or worse donor in real time. Um, that's really where we're going as an industry, um, hopefully, will, which will allow nonprofits to be more, become more relational with their donors and less transactional. I'm glad you brought up just that entire conversation. We've used donor search in the back in the, in the past, and I, and I feel like I liked it because it was a predictor of philanthropic intent. And I think a lot of us have um, a love-hate relationship with wealth screens because who knows how much they actually can predict. They're a nice starting point, but they are not the holy grail of understanding someone's net worth. And so to me, you have to look at a, a number of variables. Um, and again, I, I even, you know, would advocate for part of the heart piece of that, the art, the art of fundraising. You got to know yeah. their story and their heart, but you're right. The algorithms have to be there and we have to be looking at them because why would we want to spend, you know, a portion of our budget, sending a direct mail piece to everyone when only, you know, 2% of them are opening it. We, it is incumbent upon us to just keep analyzing that data and refining it. You know, we may get to a point where we're only going to be sending it to boomers and we'll just have a separate strategy for what we're going to do from millennials yeah. on web or social or not web, uh, social media or mobile or something like that. So I really pre appreciate that conversation. And, and, and you just, you're, you're kind of a unicorn in, in development because you have this left brain you know, that has the AI component and, and the technology, but, but even hearkening back to your early days and your mother, we can tell that you're just such a good human and have a heart for this sector. I wonder if there's a story that sticks out to you in your time. You've worked with so many nonprofits, whether as a consultant or in your own um, leadership positions that really resonated and stayed with you. 
Yeah, I mean, I well, thank you. And I, I um I love the nonprofit sector. I mean, I never knew it was actually a, even potentially a career and, you know, 20 years um in the making and it is um it's just a wonderful sector where if you believe in the power of of good and you know, in the power that we is greater than me, um you'll never be disappointed. And I, you know, looking back at my career, some of the most meaningful moments you know, we're working with true philanthropists that, um, you know, the ones that didn't want their name up on stuff. They they just truly wanted to, to come in and engage and partner with an organization. Um, so many great examples um, of people that just, they were blessed, um, they knew they were, and they wanted to give back. And th- it, that that is why I think that's what fuels a lot of people in the nonprofit sector. I will say, you know, for me, the one story I just like, it just, it, it probably got me um, on this path early in my days in nonprofit when I was essentially kind of like holding down the fort at the Boys and Girls Club, I came in one morning, um, only maybe a few months after I started, you know, kind of helping out. And there was a kid that was asleep on the porch and it was like eight o'clock in the morning. And he was just on this little, this little like foyer and he was asleep. And, and I was like, Hey, what's up? And, and you know, it, it turns out his, was a kid who was a straight A student um, taking trigonometry in Japanese in high school on his own, but whose mother was a drug addict. Um, he was a type one diabetic. He, his mom went on a rant the night before. He had nowhere to go, and he went to the one place he knew was safe, and he stayed on the porch of the Boys and Girls Club because it was a little bit tucked away. And uh, man, I'll, I'll tell you what, like that type of thing just gets you, and you know. I never look back 20 years. I mean, and you can equate that. There's so many incredible missions, uh, whether they're, you know, animal rights or curing cancer, that if you can, if you can, you know, look at how you spend your, your life and your career and at some small way reconcile the fact that you help make it, make the world a better place, then, you know, this is the sector for you. And uh, I've I've never had a single regret, even though working in nonprofits very difficult. Um, it's a really tough job, but it's it's a way of life for most people that you know find it to be their lifelong career. Here, here. Yep, I could feel your heart in that story. Thank you so much for for sharing that. And what a call to arms! Come on, everybody, to the nonprofit sector. We need you. <laughs> we need mm. different creativity and yeah. that little sure. boy curled up on the porch Where are needs you? you. He needs yep. your hustle. He needs your volunteer. He needs your dollars. So Nathan, we love to ask all yeah. of our guests their one good thing. It could be your secret to success or a habit, something that we could implement today. Um, gosh, there's so, uh, yeah, I'm a bit OCD, so I probably have lots of habits. Um, <laughs> Love it. <laughs> you know, you know, early bird gets the worm, you know, work hard, no shortcuts, that kind of thing. I, I, I will say, you know, as I'm always on this journey, um, uh, myself, everyone is on a journey, but I'm very conscious of, of, um, evaluating where I'm at and lessons learned. And right now I will say that what's been more on my heart is it's, it's so important to work yeah, if you're in the nonprofit sector, so important to work in a mission that fuels you and that you identify with. It's more important to work with people that you love. So, so I guess the the thing would be, work where you love, but work with people you love more. And I would have said that was different in my in my past career. It was I was just mission centric, and it didn't matter if people were good or bad. I would take my my inspiration and I would draw that from the mission. Um, as I've gotten older and I've learned, you know, that's short lived, that will, that can burn you out and that, you know, will only go so far. But when you evaluate career and potential career moves, 
that are um, either equal doses or, or a little bit more slated to the people and then the mission, that's where things really start to click. So, I mean, that's a maybe I, I'm turning 50 next year. It's like my uh, my uh, 50 year word word of wisdom that I've probably learned the hard way multiple times. I agree with that so much. I mean, even while you were talking about it, I just went back into the recesses of my mind thinking about all the incredible people I work with and when and the times when I was working with not incredible people <laughs> and and the differences of just getting right. up in the morning and wanting to go to work and being excited to see your work family and to, to have that level of trust and camaraderie allows, at least to me, I mean, we were in the creative space as marketers mostly, you know, it, it allows the creativity to explode when you have that level of trust and um, and just friendship also in the office. So I think that was a really good, uh, one good thing. Where can uh, people connect with you, Nathan, um, either with, um, you know, professionally or on social? I mean, I, we've already given you a shout out on LinkedIn. Um, and I told Nathan before this started that LinkedIn has been encouraging me to be his friend for years. And <laughs> now, na- and, and now I know we've been friends because I love your articles, but where else can somebody connect with you? Yeah. You, you know, I've been really proud of um, my, the LinkedIn community. I've worked hard for years to, to build a community of nonprofit, um, you know, leaders, workers. Um, and I would say that that's probably the best place. I really, I, that's my, um, platform of choice. Uh, personally, um, I, I'm very big on, uh, and, and probably more COVID than anything big on, um, hobbies and self-care. And so I, I published a couple of blogs on it last year about the, the, um, values of having a hobby psychologically and, you know, just from a, a mental health, uh, mental health perspective, I have a, a Instagram page called stump house creative, uh, where I make things in my garage and it's always something new and I'm always exploring at that learning part. Uh, so somehow it's creative on Instagram um, for the personal side, but honestly, anyone who reaches out to me on LinkedIn, I love engaging with people in the sector. I've, I've never said no to reach out to, or to, to reach back to someone who has needs career advice, um, who wants to test an idea, who wants connection to somebody else. So uh, I think this is what we do in the nonprofit sector. I think I never expected that, but I learned very early on that there are no competitors in the nonprofit sector. If you believe, yes. you know, if you believe in philanthropy, then, you know, we're in it together. That was your second good thing. I'm going to, I think we're going to have yeah. to call it that. <laughs> I mean, again, unicorn, I mean, Stumphouse creative, he is working in that analytic side, but he's also doing the creative side. And that is what makes you so human and so great. I think Nathan, Nathan, Th- Thank you My so much. My mind is blown by this yeah. conversation. Thank you so much for being here. These were some seriously good nuggets. I look forward to seeing it evolve. My pleasure. And thank you really for carrying the, the, the such an important message forward for people to hear. I mean, I, um, it, it's so easy to think that, you know, life is hard and life is bad and there's bad people and bad players, but there's so much good in the world and, and more people need to highlight that. So I really commend you for doing that because it's such a needed uh, thing in, in today's society more now than ever. So uh, really my hats off to, to all of you. Thank you so much. Yep. Thanks for being you. a part of our village. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. We hope you were inspired by Nathan's challenge to leverage artificial intelligence to inform strategy. We got to focus on building up that base of supporters, friends. 
You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission. Every Monday, we send a weekly roundup of our best content and resources to our good community. So sign up free at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you love what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and helps expand our community. Thanks, friends. Our production hero is the best curator of TikTok videos, Julie Confer. Hi. Our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.